Uh, we've been studying through the book of Revelation for a few weeks now, and uh, we're in chapter 14. We study the Bible here verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we begin at a book of the Bible, uh, the beginning of the book, and we go all the way to the end. And um, last week, as we were studying through uh, chapters 14, we made it through verses 1 through 5, and someone came up to me afterwards and and um, basically said that they were grateful that we are, that they said, we're grateful that we're in a church where uh, it's not fluff. And man, last week was not fluff. Last week's study was some hard-hitting stuff. And it's not, it's not because um, the pastor gave some mighty preaching. Uh, it, it's simply because we go through the Word of God, and when God's Word deals with, with uh, hard or challenging or difficult things, that's, that's what we go through. And, and that's where we are at. And really what we've been looking through is we've been going through the first five verses of this chapter and then on in through the rest of this chapter is, is we really are looking at some of the good things um, that uh, God says are going to take place during the, the tribulation period. And, and that might be somewhat of a foreign thought to many because when you think about the book of Revelation, we think about cataclysmic and apocalyptic kind of events. And certainly that kind of stuff is recorded and prophesied about in the book of Revelation. But there's more to it than just the wrath of God and, and devastation and, and, and global demise and, and all of these things that you know Hollywood even tries to portray as far as uh, some future things that are going to take place that the Bible talks to us about. But in regards to the good things that we've been studying through in this chapter, if you remember in verses 1 through 5, we were specifically looking at the good things that are going to take place during the tribulation period, specifically in verses 1 through 5, in regards to these 144,000 witnesses of God who were told, really what we're being told in those first five verses or being showed in the first five verses is that God's going to protect His during this time. He marks these men with the seal we read about, and, and God protects them through all seven years of the tribulation um, in spite of all of the, the devastation that takes place. And not just the devastation that comes as a result of God's judgment, but um, as a result of the, 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 the beast and the Antichrist waging war against God and against God's people, yet these 144,000 of God's witnesses that he sets apart for himself are protected through all of the tribulation period. If you remember, John tells us in verse 1 that he looked and he saw a lamb or the lamb standing on Mount Zion with him. And that was a, 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 even at this point chronologically through the study of the book of Revelation or through the events that are going to take place, we see that even as John's standing there on the, on the sea of the shore, he's looking into the future at the end of all of these things when Jesus returns, which is recorded in Revelation chapter 19 in detail at that time when Jesus descends and he returns with his saints with him and his, his foot touches down in Jerusalem. And, and G, John says, man, I see Jesus standing on Mount Zion, the Lamb, and with him, the 144,000. And this is a good thing. This is an encouraging thing because at this midway point, uh, things go from incredibly, incredibly bad to incredibly, incredibly, as somebody who I admire says, badder. It goes from bad to badder. And, and, and we see that there's good and gooder things that are, are now going to be taking place at this, at this time. And in light of this, we're really looking at a contrast for us, um, a contrast between God's mark and the mark of the beast that we read about in chapter 13, previously leading up to this chapter that we're in now. And we're reminded, as we see this contrast of how Satan, in order to trick and, and in order to deceive people, he always tries to imitate the good things of God. Satan's uh, an imitator. He's not an inventor. He's, he's, he's not a, um, a creator. He, he, he's an imitator. He, he's a, he's, he perverts the great and the good and awesome things of God, and, and, and in doing so, uh, um, evil is, is the result. And so, as we looked at these things, in addition to looking at how the seal 
and we'll set these 144,000 Jewish men apart unto God. We also looked at four attributes that John tells us about them in these first five verses. Four attributes that really set them apart from those who will take the mark of the beast at this time. And, and really, these attributes are, are, are reflected or should be reflected in the lives of all believers, even today. And, um, and, and some of them are, are, are things that God does in us and, and as, as a result of our faith. And some of the things are our are response to what God has done in us and, and, and God's great love. And that's what's true also with these 144,000 as these attributes. And the first was written about in verse 3, where John says that these men were those who were redeemed from the earth, and um, men who had been bought and paid for by the blood of the Lamb. And that's us. Remember, we talked about that. We too have been purchased, bought back by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain for our sins. Second attribute is seen in verse 4, where we are told that they are the ones who will not or do not defile themselves with women. And, and obviously, John clarifies that and speaks to the fact that they're virgins, but the idea behind this, which we went into great t- detail last week, is, is that these men are men who are holy and completely devoted to God. Nothing else pulls at them. They have no commitment to anything but, but God alone. And, 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 and that may not be true in our lives as we're husbands and, and wives and parents and grandparents, and we have other commitments here in this life, but that doesn't mean that we can't be holy and completely devoted to God or that we shouldn't be because we should. And, and it's really an issue of priority in our life, is it not? You know, uh, and, 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 and wives, if, if, uh, or husbands, ask your wives if this is true. You know, do you, does your wife really want you to put her before God? No, not a chance. Our, our, our wives, and likewise husbands, you know, wives ask your husbands, we, we don't want you, we want you to, uh, to, to love us and to treat us real nice and, and all those kinds of things, but but first and foremost, the reason why I love my wife beyond anything else is because she loves God the most. She puts him first. She's completely and wholly devoted to God. And because of that, she's devoted and, and committed to me and, 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 and vice versa. But these men, they give us that example of being completely set apart to God, completely devoted to God. Now, the third and fourth attributes, and we're about, about going to wrap up the review, but the third and fourth attributes are also seen in verse 4 where we read, that these are those who follow Jesus wherever he goes. And then lastly, we're told, and this is a really cool reminder of just what God does and who God is, but we're told in verse 4 at the end that they are the first fruits to God, which simply points out the fact that these 144,000 who are really comprised or made up of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, it's, it's telling us that they're the first fruits, they're the first fruits to God, and it's, and it's this idea, and hopefully you guys went and read in the book of Revelation chapter 12 where I talked about reading uh, some of the things regarding the laws and uh, about first fruit or some of the um, the the teaching behind what a first fruit is and what that means, but that what it really points us to is that they're they're the first of many to come is what we're being told, and and you have to know who they are in order to know what's to come when they when they're being spoken about who their first fruits and many in the church today wrongly believe that the church is these hundred and forty four thousands represented figuratively or spiritually, and that's not the case. Clearly, we're told. Uh, without a doubt, with no figurative kind of implication here, no metaphoric representation, we're clearly told that there are 144,000 Jewish male virgins all from the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 from the tribe of Benjamin, and then it lists the tribes individually back, I think, in chapter 7, where it tells us this. And so they are the first fruits of many to come. And again, we see God's promise in this, where God reminds us that He's a promise keeper, that He's made covenant promises to the Hebrew people, and he's going to fulfill it. And these 144,000 who are see standing with God at the end of this whole thing, protected, God says they're the first of many to come, first of the many of the nation of Israel as a whole who are still yet going to be redeemed and brought to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and wherein as the nation of Israel um, uh, did not receive Christ as their Lord and Savior 2,000 years ago, there is coming a day when they still will. Now, in the chapters that have 
preceded chapter 14, chapters 13, 12, 10, 11, 11, 12, all the way down, um, uh, we have spent really a, quite a bit of time reading and studying about some of the judgments of God. Not only the judgments of God, but the rage of Satan. You remember we read about how Michael the archangel is going to battle with Satan, who can now go before the presence of God in heaven, and he's going to be cast out once and for all. And when he does so, he comes to the earth, and, and all satanic rage is unleashed upon the earth. It's part of, a part of the, the judgment, a part of the, 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 the destruction that, that will come, and he will bring destruction upon the earth. Satan will during these seven years of tribulation. But as we continue to go on through the remaining verses of this chapter, what we're really seeing is, is there's a pause. There's these kind of parentheses that God takes a moment to speak about certain things that are going to be going on in the midst of all this, and God again does that here. There's a parenthesis or there's a pause where, where God reveals to us um, about some more of the good things, some more of the encouraging things that will be taking place even though all hell is literally breaking out upon the earth. And picking up back in verse 6, if you want to look there, we'll start reading here in a second. But picking up and back in verse 6, we start off by being told about three angels. Okay? Three angels, and things that I want you to notice here is there's some really cool stuff. Is that We're told about these three angels who are sent by God throughout all of the earth. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? And, and yes, these are, these, are, these, are, these are angelic, supernatural things that aren't uh, really a part of what we see on an everyday basis that are going to be manifested to the inhabitants of the earth. And they go forth about all the earth, proclaiming God's messages to all the inhabitants of the earth. And the first angel we'll, we'll read here, he's sent out to preach an everlasting gospel. The second angel is sent out to declare the fall of Babylon. And the third angel is sent out to warn people or the inhabitants of the earth about the eternal doom that will come to those who are considering taking the mark of the beast. Remember, this all, be, this all takes place at the three and a half year mark in, in, in conjunction with what we read in chapter 13 where the Antichrist is going to establish uh, him, set it up so that he's being worshipped and making people take his mark as a sign of, of really of ownership and citizenship into his kingdom. Now, these three angels, along with the other two mentioned at the end of this chapter, there's five in total that we'll read about uh, through this chapter, but they in total set the stage. Okay, as this parenthesis goes on, it's also a transition. They set the stage and, and, and um, our preparation for the next sections that are going to come that will take us through the end of the book, um, which tell really in detail about the fall of Babylon. It, they, it teaches us about the bull judgments, the last set of judgments that are to come, and really about um, the wrath of God that's going to come down upon the beast, upon the Antichrist and a false prophet. However, in light of what we read in these verses, what we need to take note of, what we must see is that no matter what the world is doing, okay, who here has television? I'm not judging you. Who has television? Internet? Paper? I mean, in, in all of those things, we read about what the world is doing. Do we not? And truthfully, when we read about these things, what the world is doing, it can be disheartening. It can be concerning. It can be at times even overwhelming or cause fear and anxiety. But what we read in this chapter, what we're really understanding in this chapter is that no matter what the world is doing or no matter what things are going on in the world around us that are out of our control, because we read about these things, we hear about these things, and we, we're, we can be devastated partially in part because it's, it's out of our control. You know, it's one of the things, it's one of the overwhelming feelings that I've had to deal with when I go to Uganda and, 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 and um, come alongside our missionaries there because there's such poverty on a level that we don't know in the United States that we've never experienced, that I've never seen even going to other parts of the world and seeing poverty where people are living in, in um, pallet houses and, and different things. But when you go to Uganda, you see such expanse of this. It's the norm. It's not the unnormal. It's, it's the norm that, 
that um, it, 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 it's, it's when you see that, it's overwhelming because you can't begin to make a dent in what's going on there through philanthropy or through social, um, um, uh, even as Christians going out socially and trying to make an impact on what's going on. Not to say that we shouldn't, but it's just so huge. It's so beyond what people can, can really take care of the problem. It can be feel overwhelming. But the cool thing about it is, to lose hope in any of those situations because God's in control and what people really need is the same thing that you and I have received and that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you get that, everything changes. Everything changes. Your circumstances may not change, but your outlook, outlook on life, your perspective into eternity, it changes everything. And, and, and that's what we see here. No matter what's going on, even the things are out of our control, we're taught here in this chapter that God is still in control. This morning, in your life, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you see, no matter how out of control things feel for you, or even are, God who loves you is still in control. And even though, keep in mind too, even though God is merciful, even though God is clearly long-suffering to those who do evil, giving them ample time to repent, Keep in mind as we read in this chapter also that God, God will come to the place where He says, enough is enough. Let's read verse 6. In verse 6 of chapter 14, John writes and says, And then he saw, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying, with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him. And it's interesting the, the context in which this worship is being called. Worship Him, it says, who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. In other words, worship Him, the Creator, Creator God. And in verse 8 it goes on and says, and another angel, the second angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his, of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Then John says in verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Father, I pray, God, that You would speak to us this morning. Lord, we know Your Word is truth. We know that it's living and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, each one of us needs a revelation from you this morning. Each one of us, Father, desires to hear from you. Lord, you call us to an intimate and personal relationship with you so that we may know you and uh, through your Son, Jesus Christ. And, and Father, part of knowing you is hearing from you and you, God, revealing your will to us and your plan for our lives and God comforting us and encouraging us in our time of need. And Father, we believe and know that You can do that this morning by Your Spirit through Your Word this morning. And so as we study these futuristic events, Lord, that are going to come to pass, that You've told us about, and Father, that we believe are true, I pray, God, that You would reveal truth to us. Father, I pray that You would give us understanding. And Father, that we would see in the midst of um, these things that are going to take place, Lord, that You don't stop being a good God that you are faithful and true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, if you want to look back to verse 6, and, and I want to again say last week when we read through um, these verses, because I read all of these verses last week, even though we only made it through, through five of the first verses, 
But I spoke briefly about these angels at that time, if you remember, these angels who are going to be flying through the heavens or through the skies of, and throughout all the earth, as it says in um, verse uh, uh, 6, about reaching um, throughout all the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And I pointed out that one of the odd things seen in the book of Revelation in total as we're, we're getting a view of how things will be, specific, specifically how a lot of things will be different than they are right now, is that one of the things that we see in the book of Revelation is how the spiritual realm that we cannot see into right now will be able to be seen into during the tribulation period. It's as if this veil has been pulled back that separates the realm that we live in now um, from the things that are going on around us that we aren't privy to see. And we know that this is true because even in the Old Testament, there's times where, where people are given a glimpse into this other realm where there's there's things going on in the spiritual world that you and I don't get to be aware of with our own senses, so to speak. It's not to say that God doesn't give people glimpses and, and, and even tells us that we entertain angels at times unwittingly or unknowingly, that there's this interaction that goes on. But in the book of Revelation, there's something specific that takes place. For example, back in chapter 6, when the sixth seal is broken on the scroll to the deed to the earth that the Lamb who was slain uh, is able to redeem, we're told that the sky, with the opening of the sixth seal, that the sky will recede like a scroll being rolled up, and the inhabitants of the earth will then be able to see into the spiritual realm. And it'll be such a frightening and overwhelming thing for them that they say that they'll even try to hide themselves from the face of God, wishing that the mountains would fall upon them. And um, it, it has to be a terrifying, fearful thing to see. All throughout the Old Testament, when you see human beings getting a glimpse into the spiritual realm, whether it's seeing an angel of God or seeing some demonic things going on, or see the Lord's armies taking battle with Elijah and Elisha, you, the, all of these people are like overwhelmed by with what they see. Uh, some to the point where they said they fell down as dead. And, and so the inhabitants of the earth, these people who are rejecting God, these people who are shaking their fist at God's face, knowing that God's doing these things, the scroll will be rolled back and they're going to be uh, seeing things um, that we'll never be able to see this side of eternity. Now, also in chapter 9, uh, we're told that when the fifth trumpet is sounded, another set of judgments that go forth, when the, when the, the fifth trumpet is sound, sounded, we read about this army of demons that will rise up from the bottomless pit. And what they do is, is we know that they're seen by the inhabitants of the earth because the inhabitants of the earth are running from them as these demons are chasing after them. And um, when, when they're chasing after them because they, 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 they'll sting the people with their scorpion-like demonic tail, and in doing so, they're bringing, the Bible says, an inescapable pain and torment to whoever they sting that'll last for five months. And again, it's not so much the judgment that I'm pointing out here, but the fact that people are seeing supernatural things on, on a regular occurrence during this period of time. In addition to these things, we're now told about these three angels that are going to be flying through the sky, going throughout the whole earth. And, and all who dwell on the earth at this time are not only going to see them, but they're going to hear their messages. And, and God is taking this moment to address the world. God's convening um, uh, an opportunity or making an opportunity for the whole world to hear something that he wants to say to them at this time. And um, according to verse 6, the first angel, we're told, is going to be sent out and he comes preaching or speaking an everlasting gospel message. Preaching and calling all the inhabitants of the earth, the people of the earth, it says specifically there, to fear God to give glory to Him, and thirdly, to worship God who created all things. Now that's specific. It's intentional that at this time God would do this thing. And the Bible tells us that we who follow Jesus, having put our faith, having put our hope and trust in Him, the Bible tells us that you and I today have also been entrusted with the Bible says the gospel message. This angel has been entrusted with a message to go throughout all the earth, this message that is the everlasting gospel message, and we can't ignore the fact that we today have also been entrusted, as it says in the Scripture, with an 
with the gospel message. In fact, if you remember, the very last thing that Jesus did before he ascended into heaven was to command his disciples to go and to make disciples of him from all the nations, every tribe, every tongue, all nation, much like we see here, to go into the entire world and, and, and to make disciples of all nations by teaching them the things that he had commanded them, by teaching them about him, about Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, listen to this, it's pretty cool. He said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse all the, or chapter 2 through verses 4 and 8, it's, it's a little bit here, but I want to take you all the way through the complete thought. He said this, he said, but as we, not just speaking of himself, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, Okay? He says, even so we speak, or because of this, I speak. And he says, I do it in this way, not as pleasing to men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words and try to coerce them. And he said, as you know, we're not with a cloak for greed. God is our witness. He says, I had no other motive. It was just to please God. He said, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or for others, when we might have demanded as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you. This is the manner in which he came with this message that he had been entrusted with. He says, uh, we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately loving for you, Paul said. He said that we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God. Now here's the, here's the, the, the kicker in the manner in which Paul said that he delivered this message that he'd been trusted with. He said not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Keep that in mind. He says, because you had become dear to us. Because you had become dear to us. Now, Paul didn't know these people before he shared the gospel message, so why would he say, because you had become dear to us, we came to you with this message that God said we must deliver, that he entrusted with, you, with us? And it was not because of the relationship that he had with them, but because of the relationship that he had with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul said, you've all become dear to me. The people in this world, the people who Christ gave his life for, have become dear to him so much so that he was willing to lay down his own life to deliver that gospel message to them. Now, some of you know that my wife likes to run marathons. Some of you don't. She does. And um, a marathon, as most of you know, is a distance of 26.2188 miles. That's important. Because if you're running that long, the .88 is a lot. <laughs> and I know this because there was once a time when I thought I wanted to also run marathons. And it's a long story, but I was also training for a marathon, and I ended up in the hospital for over a week, in part because of my training. But during that time, I found out that the word marathon... Um, which is used to identify this act of insanity of running 26.2188 miles. It came from history, um, specifically uh, of the Persian invasion of Greece. That's where this word comes from. This took place in the city of Marathon, in the Greek city of Marathon in 490 BC. And even though the Greek army dispatched out of Athens to go to the city of Marathon to ward off the Persian invaders, they were far outnumbered. And even though they were far outnumbered, they defeated the Persians, and this victory is what marked the turning, part, the turning point in the, in the Greco-Persian Wars. Now, history records that the Persians were defeated when the Greek army that had been dispatched out of Athens received its reinforcements from Sparta. And the Spartans had come to the fight only after a military courier by the name of Pheidippides had ran the 140 miles from Athens to Sparta in two days to bring word of the Persian invasion. And once the Persians were defeated, the commander of the Greek army then once again sent this same man, Pheidippides, and another courier on two different paths back to Athens with this message of victory. 
And even though Pheidippides had to run another 26 miles through the mountains, he did so in less than three hours and was the first to arrive with the message that he had been entrusted with. But according to Greek, the, the Greek historian Lucian, when Pheidippides reached the Athenian magistrates there in the city of Athens, he broke out saying this, Joy to you we have won. And there, Lucian says, there and then he died, breathing his last breath with the words, joy to you. Now, certainly this message that Pheidippides was entrusted with was a valuable message. It was a valuable message because all of the citizens of Athens were waiting in anticipation. Who was going to come through that mountain pass? Was it the Persian army? Or was it a courier with good news? But this message was not so valuable that it should have cost him his life. However, Paul makes it clear in 1 Thessalonians that we read in chapter 2 that the message that he was imparted with, or the message that he was entrusted with to impart, he said it was worth laying down his life, and Paul willingly did so because of his love for God. And his love for those who needed to know what God had done for them. And the fact of the matter is, is this message of forgiveness of sins, this message of eternal life by God's grace through faith is worth you and I laying down our lives for. Remember, this message that we have been trusted with, it truly is a message of joy. A message of a victory. And it deals with eternal life. And it deals with eternal death regarding the souls of who Christ died for, of the people that Christ died for. Therefore, we should remember, we should keep in mind just how valuable this message of God's love is that we've been entrusted with. And we need to be sure that this message of God's love is therefore then spoken in and by love through us. This was part of Paul's point when he reminded the Christians in Thessalonica of the reason for why he shared God's message of love, saying it's because they had become dear to him. Now this was possible, and you can think about this and we can go, yeah, I know this and it's true, but how do I get to this place? And this was possible for Paul to do because Ultimately, he ended up seeing others through the eyes of Jesus. He saw others through the eyes of Jesus. He saw others with the heart of Jesus who sees value and sees worth in every person that he died for. And this is what is needed in us. We need the eyes of Jesus. We need the eyes of Jesus that see value and worth in people. And we need the heart of Jesus which loves people sacrificially and selflessly. Remember, it was Jesus who said that He who has been forgiven much, loves much. And we have received the good news message. We who have received the good news message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, have we not been forgiven much? So we ought to love much. The Gospel message is a message of love. And the best way... To love someone is to tell them how God sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for their sins. This message is a good news message. This message is a message of love. This message is a message of joy. This message is a message of victory that Jesus gained on the cross when He died for our sins. And Paul, he explained this message concisely saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4, through he said, Moreover, brethren... I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain, Paul says. He said, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again on the third day 
according to the Scriptures. Now, because the word gospel, if you look back to our text, is used here in verse 6. Some believe that this salvation, this same salvation message of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is this message that the angel would be sent out to preach. But if you follow the text, the contextual flow, look to verse 7, we see that the specific good news that this angel brings is to fear God, to worship Him who created everything because God's judgment is coming. That's the message. That's the everlasting message that this angel is sent out to deliver. And this message does not in itself have the power to save someone, but it has the power to show a person their need for a Savior. And in turn, change a person's mind or open a person's heart to receive the gospel message of Jesus Christ, which Paul clearly does tell us has the power of God to save all who respond, who respond to it, to save them from this judgment that is to come. However, this gospel message we read here is everlasting. And, and you might think, well, why is it everlasting? Why is this message everlasting? And it is because it's the truth. That's one of the, 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 the attributes of the truth is that it's everlasting. The truth transcends through time. And because it's the everlasting truth, and because the everlasting truth is, it, 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 it is the everlasting truth, it's also good news. Good news that all men and women will sooner than later come to have to come to terms with. Everybody, whether they put their faith in Jesus Christ or not, is going to have to come to terms someday with this truth. The first chapter of the book of Romans addresses this. And it points this out by saying that people who suppress what they know to be true and exchange the truth for the lie do so in order that they may worship someone or something other than the Creator who judges all things. Romans chapter 1, if you want to turn there, verse 18 is where we'll start. It says, God's anger is revealed from heaven, verse 18, Romans chapter 1. God's, God's anger is revealed from heaven against all the sin and, the, and, and, and evil of the people whose evil ways prevent the truth from being known. And it goes on, Paul goes on and says in the book of Romans chapter 19, he said, God punishes them because... What can be known about God is plain to them. Because what can be known about God is plain to them. For God Himself made it plain. In other words, God doesn't judge unjustly or unfairly. Everybody's going to have to come to terms with the truth. They're going to have to respond to the truth that God makes known to them. Paul goes on and says, Ever since God created the world, His invisible qualities, both His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. They are perceived in all things that God has made. So those people have no excuse at all. They know God, but they do not give Him the honor that He belongs, nor do they thank Him. Rather, or instead, their thoughts have become, have become complete nonsense. You ever met anybody who denies the Creator and listened to their wisdom? It's nonsense. It's nonsense. And it says that their empty minds are filled with darkness. And I find that ironic because those kinds of people who deny God, deny the creation, turn their back on the Creator, they claim enlightenment. They use that word all the time, but God says they're just darkness there's no light in them they are filled with darkness they say they are so wise but they are fools paul says instead of worshiping the immortal god they worship images made to look like mortal human beings or birds or animals or reptiles and so god has given those people over to filthy things their hearts desire they do shameful things with each other. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. And here it is. They worship and serve what God has created instead of the Creator Himself 
who is to be praised forever. Amen. See, the fact of the matter is, this everlasting message that the angel will be sent out to declare the whole world, it's, it's a timely message we see, a very timely message at this point of the tribulation, because it warns those, back in chapter 13 that we're told about, it warns those who are considering or willing to take the mark of the beast. It's a warning to them. It's a warning to those who are going to take the mark of the beast, those who are choosing to openly worship Satan rather than worshiping God, the creator of all things. God's warning them that if they do so, there's a final judgment that's soon to come. God's saying, listen, there's something attached to this decision that you're going to make. So at verse 8, we read, it says, but in, in chapter 14 of verse 8, it says, and then another angel and again, this is a second warning, but it again ties to it. Followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city is fallen because she has made all the nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So we're told at this time, the city of Babylon, which by the way, that very same ancient city, does anybody know where that's at? What country? Iraq. And, and there was a very famous leader not too long ago who was the ruler of Iraq who is now dead. But did you know that under his reign, Saddam Hussein rebuilt, for the most part, that ancient city of Babylon? It's, it's been reconstructed. The thing that the Bible talks about here. And this city that Saddam Hussein has mostly reconstructed, it will be the capital city for the Antichrist. Now, we'll talk about this more when we come to chapter 18. And if you want to read ahead, you can. But for now, the important thing to take note of is that the additional good things, because we're still talking about good things here, the additional good things that we're being told about is the fact that this city, Satan's unholy city, is going to be judged. It's going to be destroyed. And this is good because the city, this city that the Antichrist and his false prophet will set up their command central, if you will, and, and control the entire world on every aspect, whether it's economically, politically, or religiously, we're told here that when it falls and the second angel of God is seen flying through the skies of the earth proclaiming God's judgment against it, what we're seeing and being told here ultimately is that everything that the inhabitants of the earth have come to put their hope and trust in will also have been destroyed with the fall of this city. And we have to question ourselves and, and, and not only just look to the world today, but we have to question ourselves and go, who or what other than God are we putting our trust into that is spiritual Babylon that is going to fall? You see, in that moment of time as that angel goes forth proclaiming this truth, we see that, that at this time all the inhabitants of the earth, their financial security, their government who promised to protect them, and their false religion which wrongly teaches them that they don't need God, it'll all be gone. Like that. But the ironic thing about this is that these exact same things that the inhabitants of the earth will be putting their faith and hope in today are really the same empty things that the inhabitants of the earth are putting their faith and hope in today that the world is telling us that we need to put our faith and hope in today. And when there's a political demise, when there's a financial demise, when you, when you put your, your spiritual trust in something other than God, what happens is when these things collapse, people are left with nothing. They're hopeless. And with this prediction of the future destruction of Babylon, you know what? We once again should be reminded that the only thing that endures, the only thing that is worthy of our faith and our hope is God who is the Creator of all things. Again, back to what the first angel calls the people of the world to worship. God the Creator. In addition to the destruction of Babylon, we're also told in verse 8, if you look there, that the city is where the nations of the world will be made to drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And, 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 and in this verse, the, the, the word fornication, if you look there, it's truly being used as a metaphor to describe the spiritual adultery that is being committed against God by those who decide to worship the Antichrist. In light of this, we also need to remember that you and I Hear this this morning. Remember this. We hear this, 
But I don't think we really live our lives in relationship to this truth that we know. But hear it again, because we need to keep in mind as a result of this, of looking at this and seeing this, that we serve a jealous God, the Bible says. We serve a jealous God. A God who will not allow for us who are called His bride to put our trust or to give our love to anything but Him. Try it. See how well it goes for you. And I'm not being facetious in that. I'm speaking from one of experience. I've done that and it doesn't go well. God's jealous. He won't share my love for Him with anyone or anything else. And nor should He. We're a jeal- he, we serve a jealous God because He has redeemed us, the Bible says, because He has purchased us back with the blood of His only begotten Son, because He has chosen us individually for Himself, and He is not willing for us to put anything above Him. And when we understand and come to know who our God is, then we realize that there is no need to do this. You see, it's not about just not doing it. God says, I want you to know me, know who I am, so that you realize that there's no need for you to give your love, your affection, your trust, your hope to or in anything else. God makes Himself known to us and reveals Himself to us, hopefully even this morning, because of this very reason. And this is why the angel, back in verse 7, is calling warning and is is calling the inhabitants of the earth during the tribulation to worship Him who made, specifically Him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of the water. To to go, look at what you're, you're making a choice to worship in comparison to who you can worship or who you should worship. And really, because what he's saying is, is he's saying, God, our God, the God who should you worship is Jehovah Elohim. As we would read in the Old Testament, which is the Lord, our Creator. But we also go through the names of God and we see that God is more than that. To know Him intimately is also to know that He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider. Our provider, that he is Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our protector, that he is Jehovah Rofka, the Lord our healer, that he is Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace, Jehovah Tiskanu, the Lord our righteousness, and he is Jehovah Elohinu, the Lord our God. The Lord our God. And God repeatedly commands us that we should have no other gods before Him. And in verse 9, we read more, and it says about this third angel, that this third angel followed them, the first two, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on himself, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall... Be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb of God. Now think about it. God forbid this ever happens to you because it's going to happen to some, but if you don't have your faith in Jesus Christ today and if you've not received Him as your Lord and Savior, you run a very true risk of this becoming your reality that one day, three and a half years into the tribulation mark, as you're looking up into the sky where the scroll that, that parts the, the spiritual realm and the natural realm that we live in has been rolled back and you're going to see these angels and you're going to hear this third angel come by and say, hey, don't take the mark of the beast. Because if you do, eternal torment with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb is what awaits you. Now, I don't know about you, but if that's me, I'm going to think twice about taking the mark of the beast. If I see this angelic creature that I've never seen before going through the world warning us to not do so. It it, it almost defies all reason to think that someone would really do that after seeing and experiencing this, but yet we know people do. Now this third message this angel will bring, clearly it's a warning given to all the inhabitants of the earth about not worshiping the beast. A warning to not take his mark. And again, this is a good thing. God's going, stop just for a minute. Let me tell you a few things, the inhabitants of the earth. 
Let me warn you. I care about you. I'm concerned about you. Again, we see God's goodness in this. And and with this warning, God is saying, do not be deceived because ultimately what he's telling the inhabitants of the earth, he's saying, do not be deceived because what appears to be good, what appears to be the easy way out is always the path that leads to great difficulty and great torment in the end. And how often do we need to be reminded of that? The easy path is not always the best path. And the fact of the matter is anytime we or anyone else makes a decision to really go along with the world, you know what it really is? It's a choice or a decision to go away from God. When you, when you make a decision to go, yeah, I'm just going to go along with what's going on here. I'm not going to stir the pot. I'm not going to speak out. Really what you're saying is is you're saying, I'm not going with God. And when you're not going with God, you're going away from God. And, and, and ultimately what we see here and what we know to be true is that anytime we do that, it takes a person to a place of destruction. That's the simplicity of this message that this angel is given. The bottom line is God is going to judge everyone who goes away from Him. Everyone who takes the mark of the beast. And in verse 10, it says, if you look there, they will ultimately, as a result, be made to drink the wrath of God, which will be poured out in full strength. Now, in case you're wondering what that means, this simply means that God won't mix mercy with this judgment. I've gone to court for like traffic tickets and stuff, and just once. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you'll get judgment, but you're hoping for a little mercy, right? Can I get some deferment here? Well, that's not being poured out in full strength. And that's what God's saying. There's no mercy mixed in with this at this time. No mercy poured out in full strength. God will not mix mercy with His judgment at this time. And when God is talking about the full measure of wrath, ultimately it's a reference to the eternal judgment. uh, 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 To the eternal judgment. A place according to verse 11, if you look there, where, where, where the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. You know, there's a movement within false teachers in the church today. Rob Bell is one of them who's wrote a whole book about heaven not being real. That's blasphemy. And it's a satanic trick to, 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 to deceive people in the church to believing that there's no judgment. Bottom line. And, and this is talking about an eternal place of judgment. It's literal. In fact, it's a literal place that we refer to as hell, and the Bible calls it as also a lake of fire, and it is a place that Jesus spoke more about than any other one thing. If you don't believe me, go look it up for yourself. And if Jesus spoke about it as a literal place more than any other one thing, then I have to believe that it's true. Yet in all of this, don't get focused on that because that's not the point of this passage. In all of this, we see how God who is just and will judge all who ultimately reject His grace, reject His gift of salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, in all of this, we see that He's long-suffering. Our God is long-suffering. Your God is long-suffering. My God is long-suffering. In all this, we see that that we have a God who, according to Ezekiel chapter 18, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why? Because He's calling out to them with three angels, with three specific messages going, don't do this. Why? Because He loves loves us. He's not willing that any should perish. But according to chapter 3, that all would come to repentance and live. This is what the message brought to us by this third angel ultimately examples to us is that our God is long-suffering. But God makes it very clear, make no mistake, that anyone who decides to take the mark of the beast is that they're ultimately making an informed decision just like Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 1. God's not going to go, ha ha, I tricked you, now you get to go to hell, you didn't know. That's not our God. God wants every person to make a completely informed decision about who he is and whether or not they will give their lives to him. An informed decision to spend eternity away from him in the same way God today with every man and woman reveals himself to them and then he reveals their need for a savior. Do you get that? 
God makes Himself known, saying, I'm here, I'm real. Do you hear me? Do you see me? Now look at yourself in light of who I am and understand that you are in need of a Savior, one that I've provided for you by grace. You do nothing, just believe, accept, receive, take the gift. And God makes it clear also that this decision ultimately, though, to not receive His Son, to not receive His plan of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, God's making it very clear to us here again that it's an informed decision. Today, it's an informed decision that leads a person to the place where they will ultimately be tormented forever with fire and brimstone. And the only presence of God that they will experience is the full wrath of the Lamb of God. It's the only attribute of God that they will know is His wrath. Jesus, who is His Son. But remember, God's plan includes your salvation. And He wants us to make a decision to be a part of His plan. God's plan, which is being revealed to us here, all the way from the beginning of the book of Genesis to the very last chapter of the book of Revelation, is God's revealed plan to us. And all the way from the beginning, all the way to the end, God says, part of my plan is your salvation. The bottom line is is that hell is a part of the gospel message because it is what Jesus came to save us from. John chapter 3, verse 16 and 18, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. The worship team wants to come up. We'll end with this. Verse 12, here is the patient of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write down, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. When we read here, we've read this once before in a previous chapter in this book, but when we read here again about the patience of the saints, it's specifically a reference back to what we've just read. It's specifically a reference back to the judgments of God that we've been talking about. But more specifically, God's justice. And the fact of the matter is, is, is because of this, we can have patience. Literally, you and I today can persevere and endure through all the evil and the just thing, unjust things that we see taking place on this earth or that may directly have an effect on us because we know that one day soon, after God has given each person a chance to repent, that He will administer His righteous justice. You've heard me say this before, and you can, you can address this with people in your own lives when they go, I, don't, I can't believe in a God who allows for all these things that we see going on to take place. Here's the answer. He's given you time to repent. He's, he's long-suffering. He's merciful. He's gracious. And for right now, He's allowing these things to happen so that you could turn away from your sins and be saved from the justice of God that is coming. Not only that, we're told that this is our patience because here's the deal. You know when someone sins against me, what I want to do in the flesh? I want to get them back. Six, seven, 12, 15 times more than what they've done to me. If I can. But God says we don't have to live in that place where we have to seek revenge, where we have to seek our own justice. Why We can live patiently and endure through these things that we see going on or is taking place to us because God says, I got it. Remember in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30, it says, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Closing, I want to point out that verse 13 is an obvious reference to all the men and women who refuse to take the mark of the beast, and as a result, they're going to be martyred for their faith. But even though the decision to not worship the beast will bring them much suffering, God promises them that when they die, their works will follow them, and ultimately they will have rest. In other words, God is saying 
that he will remember how they, how they resisted the world, how they resisted the Antichrist, and how they chose to put their faith in him. And guys, God sees that today in us. God sees, he knows, he's not going to forget. He knows how we resist the world, how it comes at a cost to us. The question and the challenge this morning is, is are we? Are we resisting the world? Are we staying set apart? The point of all this is to teach us and remind us that no matter what the world is doing, no matter what things are going on that are out of our control, our God is still in control. Even though He is merciful and long-suffering to those who do evil at this current time, giving them time to repent, there is coming a time when God will say, enough is enough. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this time together. And, and Lord, the remembrance that we have through these good things that You are going to do in the future, even while uh, so much um, hard and difficult things are going on, Lord, that we see You still care, that You love, that Your desire is for people to repent and be saved. And Lord, we know that today. And Father, as we started off thinking and remembering how we've been entrusted with this wonderful Gospel message that we've been recipients of, I pray, God, that we would see the value in the message that You've entrusted to us. And Lord, that we would be willing to run through this life, Lord, to bring that message of joy, that message of victory that Your Son Jesus Christ has obtained through us. Father, we love You and we worship You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Why don't you guys